0: It's always so wonderful to see all the kids heading back there, isn't it? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Again, as we've been talking about and thanking you for, we thank you that what we celebrate today is life. Life found only in the death and resurrection of your Son. Life that we celebrated uh, through the baptism ceremony of identifying with that death in life and obedience to your command. And life in that this is the first Sunday in the post-Roe v. Wade era. And Lord, you still have a lot of work for us to do to save uh, babies, to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to people of all walks of life, and to glorify you with our lives. We thank you for giving us such a simple mission, a very difficult mission, but a very simple one nonetheless. To go out into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them about your commands and knowing that you are with us till the end of the age. We go, we go so into your word with that peace and that power. In Jesus' name, amen. We've all heard of the basic food chain. Plants are eaten by herbivore animals, which in turn are eaten by carnivore animals, which in turn are eaten by bigger carnivore animals. But here are some less famous and kind of weird things that animals eat, as well as how they get that food. The first one is certain types of butterflies that only live in a specific area of the Amazon rainforest. Since this place is so far from the ocean and cut off by the Andes Mountains, these butterflies get their sodium intake by getting it from drinking turtle tears. This practice doesn't seem to hurt the turtles, as they secrete excess amounts of salt through their tears. But the concept of drinking tears seems to me, anyway, like the subject and title of an Adele song. Uh, there exist legless amphibians in Central and South America called Cecilians, which primarily live underground. Now, these look like something I would have made as a kid with my creepy crawler set in the early 90s. One species in Africa has a strange diet. When they're young, larvae, they will actually peel off their mother's skin and eat that for necessary nutrients and fat. This process doesn't hurt the mother as her skin grows back every few days and the process repeats until the larvae are grown. But man, what a bizarre form of sustenance, huh? This last one's my favorite. The mantis shrimp, named after the praying mantis for the similar way their forearms uh, look, acts like a UFC fighter and punches and smashes clams and other mollusks to eat them. And their punch isn't to be taken lightly either. You might look at this and say, oh, you're so cute. Their punches can be sometimes so fast, they're undetected by the human eye, packing 160 pounds of force in its wallop. For this reason, mantis shrimp cannot be kept in glass aquariums <laughs> because no matter how many layers the aquarium has, they can easily smash their way out of them. They have to be kept away from all other sea life and in shatter-proof acrylic. And even then, there's the 2001 news story of the Monterey Bay Aquarium having one get out of its container and actually make its way all the way to the children's area. <laughs> so- It sounds like that one friend we had, or maybe still have, who just could not stay out of trouble. As weird as the food and animals and, and ways of getting food that these animals had, there is a food that, like we introduced last week, is way more shocking and way more disturbing than these. And yet our identity and spiritual eating of this food is also our only hope in this life and the next If you remember from our messages over the past couple of months, Jesus had miraculously fed upwards of 20,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. When those people start putting the prophecy puzzle pieces together and realized that Jesus was the messianic king, they were going to forcibly make him that king with or without Jesus' permission. Jesus quashed that movement and left, but a remnant from that crowd went around looking for him until they found him. When they start challenging Jesus about sending what was taught by Jewish leaders for hundreds of years prior to that, called New Manna, which was supposed to accompany the Messianic Kingdom, Jesus tries to redirect their focus from only the physical and wanting Jesus to do what they wanted him to do, onto the spiritual, that which affected their souls. Jesus knew this first trip to earth was not the time for him to set up that kingdom. That would be when he returns for the second time. And he needed to reveal God's spiritual plan to save humanity from their sin. As God's entire plan hinged on Jesus him being the one through whom I, uh, humanity was created in the first place, him revealing God's kingdom and the only way one could enter it, him paying for the entrance into that kingdom for those who would accept it by way of his death on a cross, him rising again from that death to give new spiritual life to anyone who repented of their sin and personally took his death and resurrection as paying for it for them as a substitute, and him being the only source of spiritual spiritual sustenance for humans to face any trial any heartbreak any pain on their way to eternal life the people wanted the physical new manna or bread that God would give out of heaven which marked the physical events they wanted to happen right then and there but Jesus has been explaining to them that what they really need was him as the true and living bread of heaven We've already extensively covered what that spiritually means over these last couple of months. Last week, Jesus, once again, reiterates himself as the bread of life, but then introduces a shocking truth about one's identity with that bread. He says in verse 51 that the bread he gives for the world is actually his flesh. Eating the bread of life would actually mean eating his flesh. Jesus obviously knew the impact that would have on his audience. He did that for a reason. He had a purpose in doing that. Which one who could not wrap their minds around anything that wasn't physical and what they were expecting. And that was Jesus' point, which we'll see in a little bit. At this point, the people, still processing everything in the physical realm, react exactly how Jesus expected them to react, with revolt and disgust. That's what brings us to our passage this morning. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 6. We're going to be picking up in verse 52. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John 6, 52, or look this up on your favorite page. Bible app on your smartphone. I want us all to see this together. John chapter 6 verse 52 then the Jews began to argue with one another saying how can this man give us his flesh to eat? As noted by one biblical scholar cannibalism was strictly forbidden for the Jewish people and beyond that it was even abhorred by the rest of the Gentile Greco-Roman world In fact, later on, as the early church began to grow and pick up steam, pagan Romans misunderstood what Christians would say about the Lord's Supper, how they were consuming the body and blood of Jesus, and were so disgusted by it, they used it as an additional reason to ramp up persecution against the church. In both that and this Jewish understanding in our passage this morning, this is seen only in physical and literal terms when Jesus means it to be spiritual. Up to verse 52, Jesus is only mentioned eating his flesh. Now Jesus takes it one step further, which brings even further offense and disgust to the Jewish audience challenging him. Verse 53, So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. The Mosaic law forbade drinking the blood of any human being, much more the blood of a human being. Taking Jesus' words literally was not only revolting, but it was flat out illegal According to the Jewish law, like I referenced last week, this literal interpretation is the major problem with a sacramentalist understanding of this. That is that the bread and wine consumed during the Eucharist or communion literally turns into Jesus's body and blood when it enters the human body. It's known as transubstantiation. We can see here that these verses are not meant to be taken literally and physically. That was the whole problem the Jewish people had with it. So why would Jesus mean it to be understood in a literal and physical way in terms of his body and blood for his establishment of communion? Further, as pointed out by one biblical scholar, this conversation Jesus is having with these people happens about a year before he establishes communion, so the literal understanding of it shouldn't necessarily be connected to it. And lastly, when Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for the way in which they were eating the Lord's Supper, he rebukes them for being selfish with it, not for dishonoring the body and blood of Jesus because the bread and wine were literally turning into them within their bodies. If the Apostle Paul had that literal understanding of it, he would have certainly brought that up in his rebuke, to the Corinthian church. Now why is all of this important to a Biblical understanding of Jesus' words here? Because according to some churches, partaking in the Eucharist or communion with that literal understanding of transubstantiation is crucial and necessary for one's entrance into heaven. In that teaching, If you don't take it regularly, even every day, or you're barred from taking it because of your behavior and actions, then what happens? You risk not getting into heaven based on that alone. But does the Bible teach that that sacrament, along with any other sacraments, are necessary and required for the salvation of your soul? No. Nowhere. In fact, Paul flat out states this instead for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves this is not anything you could do this is not a a certain number of sacraments you can follow it is the gift of God not a result of works not anything we can do why so that no one may boast It's entirely resting upon God and God's grace. Not anything we can do or anything a church can do. We are saved to eternal life simply through believing by way of God's grace over us that Jesus died and rose again to pay for our sin. There are no additional rights Sacraments or things we need to do to save our souls including being baptized which we just uh, witnessed a few minutes ago or partaking in the elements of the Eucharist or communion. We are saved first. By faith in Jesus, and then in turn, we follow Jesus' commands to identify with the spiritual symbolism of believer's baptism, which again we witness today, and regularly partaking in communion, which we do the first of every month. Therefore, as we've seen and will see, Jesus' intention with these verses is purely spiritual and symbolic, which will be symbolically manifested in a physical act of identifying with them through regular partaking in the elements of communion. There is so much of this spiritual symbolism found in verses 53 and 54. We already read verse 53. I'm going to read verse 54 now. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So let's dig into this a little bit. What is all the spiritual symbolism that we can glean and dig out of verses 53 and 54? Firstly, as noted by one biblical scholar Jesus purposely meant what he said in these verses to be revolting and offensive in order to make a point. So anybody who claims that Jesus never tried to offend anybody is flat out wrong. Right here, he purposely is offending these people with with the illustration he's making. The whole concept that one needs the death of Jesus referenced by eating the flesh and blood of Jesus that he has given for the world is revolting and offensive to a lot of people just as it was to Jesus' original audience. The very first step in spiritually partaking of Jesus' body and blood is recognizing that you have a sin problem. A sin problem that's revolting and offensive to most holy God and keeps you separated from him, only destined for the place of hell that sin only earns. We all have to come to the place of realizing that we cannot fix that sin problem ourselves no matter how many good works, rites, sacraments, or other things we try to do to make up for it. We all have to realize that none of us is actually inherently good enough to make it into heaven based on that inherent goodness and trying to be a good person. That's about as offensive and shocking as the terms Jesus used here in these verses. It's actually shocking that humanity's revolting sin wasn't enough for God to just let us continue down the road of destruction and hell without any escape from it. It's shocking that his love overpowered the offense of our sin and he chose to pay for our disgusting sin himself in order to save us from that destination, and save us too, and enjoy an eternity with him. That's truly shocking. That only way was through exactly what Jesus is foretelling what would happen to him a year from when he said these words. That Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, and therefore God himself, would give his flesh and blood for the world in order to save those who would put their trust for their eternal fate in that flesh and blood. Our new spiritual lives must start with Jesus' sacrificed flesh and blood, as Jesus points out explicitly in verses 53 through 54. In the Jewish understanding, which Jesus will solidify about a, a year later at the Last Supper, these are references to the Passover meal. In observance of Passover, Jewish people will eat the flesh of the Passover lamb and drink the blood of grapes or wine or grape juice in celebration of God's deliverance of them from slavery. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, if the people Jesus was talking to weren't so wrapped up in the physical demands for Jesus to do what they wanted, they should have seen these references. Jesus wasn't being secretive about this. Jesus will fully pour the meaning he intended with these words when he celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples a year later, used these same elements to institute communion to commemorate his sacrifice for sin, and then backs it all up by dying as the Passover and sacrificial lamb for atonement, for sin, on Passover 2,000 years ago in order to bring about the deliverance from slavery to sin and the destination of hell. This is why Jesus introduces the connection to his blood in verses 53 through 54. Especially in connection with the Jewish sacrificial system of bulls, goats, and sheep, which we've been currently discovering in the men's Bible study of Leviticus. Shameless plug. Jesus' body and flesh must die in order to be the perfect and sinless sacrifice for payment for sin. In addition, it's the blood of the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus that will atone for and cleanse us from our sin, thus making us restored to God the Father. See, it's one thing to be forgiven by God for our sin, but it's quite another to be cleansed from it. The blood of Jesus is the basis for why we can have anything to do with God in any way. It was only the blood of the atonement sacrifice that the high priest splattered on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant once a year that allowed for that high priest to enter the Holy of Holies on behalf of Israel. And it's only the blood of the atonement sacrifice of Jesus that was splattered on the ground of the world that allows us to be forgiven, restored to God, legally justified before him, and be able to enter the Holy of Holies of the throne room of of God in prayer and live with him in the new heavens and new earth for all of eternity. The writer of Hebrews sums it up this way in reference to Jesus' blood atonement sacrifice. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. It is only through the sacrifice of Jesus' flesh and blood that we can be cleansed and healed from our sin problem. Biblical Christianity is the only faith to to take something revolting, like the sacrifice of one person's flesh and blood, and make it beautiful. Biblical Christianity is the only faith to take something revolting, like a person condemned by their own sin, and make them beautiful in God's eyes. And like we talked about last week, this shocking reference is our only hope for this life and the next in reality. That's why Jesus builds on this in verses 53 through 54. And why he uses the shocking terms of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. When we think of physically eating food and drinking liquid, when it enters our body, what happens to it? It becomes part of our body, doesn't it? We become one with it. It's not a mystical thought for us to think about. We know that the food and drink we consume breaks down, and their nutrients, like vitamins, minerals, and different cell structures, like carbs and protein, literally become a part of our physical body. This is exactly why Jesus chose to use these terms, albeit in a spiritual understanding. We are not simply to give a nod towards Jesus' death and resurrection and say, yeah, I believe that happened. We cannot just physically partake in the Eucharist or communion with no spiritual understanding of it. We cannot just say we believe in God or some form of higher power and think that's good enough to be cleansed from our sin and restored to God. As Jesus himself states here, we must make the sacrifice of his body and the atonement of his blood who we are in every way. We must take it For all that it means spiritually and make it one with our innermost being. We must now see ourselves as clay pots that God is making more and more into the likeness of the one who gave his body and blood to redeem us. And we must now allow his Holy Spirit to permeate and transform every part of us. Be who we are and have his leading be what our our entire identity is. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we receive immediately upon repentance and taking Jesus as the Savior from our sin and King over the rest of our lives is the only source of new life we have while we walk the rest of this earth. We can only have that Holy Spirit because of the sacrificed body and blood of Jesus, which we make one with ourselves. This is what Jesus is getting at in verse 53 when he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, dot, 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 you have no life in yourselves. That is the very basis for any kind of life in this world. What truly is there in life without the Holy Spirit? Growing love for God and love for others within us. What is there without the Holy Spirit pouring out and growing true and lasting peace and contentment and comfort within us, no matter what the circumstances, pain, or heartbreak are? What is there without the Holy Spirit opening our spiritual eyes and enlightening us to understand what God is saying to us in his word? What is there without the Holy Spirit showing us the joy in every season of life? What is there without the Holy Spirit growing the strength and power that can only come from God in every battle and in every trial? What is there without the Holy Spirit transforming us into the likeness of Jesus and growing us to spiritual maturity? In short, nothing! Just as Jesus says, making the sacrifice of his body and blood, the very foundation of who we are, is the only source of true life and living this life on earth. That's what he's getting at in verse 53. The Holy Spirit given because of the sacrifice of Jesus' body and blood is also the seal of placed on us, guaranteeing us admittance into eternal life in heaven as a down payment for our heavenly home that Jesus is preparing for us right now. Paul reveals this. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. That is a direct fulfillment of Jesus' statement in verse 54, that his sacrifice of body and blood is the only source of eternal life. Not only is it the only source of life in this earthly life, but it's the only source of life for our eternal life. And his body and blood is the only way we get from this earthly life to the next eternal Life. Jesus says in verse 54 that spiritually eating his flesh and drinking his blood is to be physically, that everybody who does that is to be raised by him in the last days. Let's read that again, verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. What has he already said about this resurrection? In the previous chapter, Jesus has already revealed to the religious leaders that it will be he who will raise everyone up from the dead. Both those who put their faith in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins and all those who rejected him. The second resurrection of those who rejected him is the one at the end of everything in end times prophecy of those who, like I said, rejected Jesus in this earthly life. And they will be raised to life in order to be judged by the one they rejected and then cast into the lake of fire for eternity. There's not really anything much more to be said about that second resurrection because there is no hope in that rejection of Jesus. It's the first resurrection that's the exciting one. And in terms of human resurrection, that Jesus spends the majority of talking about, of time talking about. The first resurrection will be the one of those who trusted his sacrificed body and blood. And this one could happen at any moment. And like we've referenced the past few weeks, judging by how things are in the world currently, this will probably happen soon and is the first event to kick off the rest of end times prophecy. In this first resurrection, Jesus himself will partially come down out of heaven, bringing all the souls of those who trusted him for salvation back with him, resurrecting and glorifying their bodies and reuniting those souls with their newly glorified bodies. Anyone who is also a follower of Jesus and still alive at that point will also be caught up to be in the clouds with Jesus and also be given glorified bodies. And as Paul reveals in 1 Thessalonians 4, everyone who has ever placed their hope in Jesus' death and resurrection for their salvation from that point on will be with him forever. It's this first resurrection that Jesus then references again to this crowd he's talking to in John 6:39 through 40, John 6:44, and now one last time in this conversation in 6:54. Becoming one with Jesus' sacrifice of body and blood is the only way to escape the second resurrection. Becoming one with Jesus' sacrifice of body and blood is the only way to be a part of the first resurrection and be transported from this earthly life filled with the Holy Spirit into the eternal life God has prepared for us. It's only through the death of Jesus, highlighted by the sacrifice of his flesh and blood, that we can be redeemed from, atoned for, and rescued from our sin and our sinful states. And it's only through the resurrection of Jesus that we can have the hope of our own resurrection someday. Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all those who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, Adam, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, the God-man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come. Now, this is admittedly admittedly not the most profound illustration that I have here, but for the sports-minded ones out there, it's constantly talked about that a championship-caliber football team needs to be a championship-caliber football team in all three phases of the game. Offense, defense, and what? Special teams. Obviously, the offense and defense need to be excellent, but special teams, which is often o- o- overlooked, also needs to be excellent in transitioning, transitioning the team from defense to offense and vice versa, and giving the team the best field position possible. As Jesus refers to here in verses 53 through 54, there are three phases to a human life, earthly life, eternal life, and the transition from earthly life to eternal life, whether by way of death or the rapture. The only way to have the most excellent and absolutely best life in all three phases is to become one with Jesus' sacrifice of his flesh and blood. We'll talk more about that abiding in him next week. But truly, truly, as Jesus says in verses 53 through 54, all three of these phases of the human life are not just the best possible outcome, but completely dependent on the sacrificed body and blood of Jesus. And not just completely dependent on them, but making them one with yourself in every way. It is all we have to trust and hope in not only for this earthly life, not only for eternal life, but Jesus getting us from one to the other. May we live and identify with spiritually eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood with each day, looking forward to our eternity and Jesus taking us to be there with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you That as shocking as this illustration is, as offensive and revolting as this illustration is, that it is our only hope. It is indeed our only hope. The only thing we have to put our trust in, your sacrificed body and blood, the only thing that gives us life through the Holy Spirit in this earthly life and the sanctification of us, the only thing that will give us the eternal life we have to look forward to and that heavenly home you're preparing for us, and the only thing that will transport us from this earthly life into eternal life. May we take you in, in every area of our lives. Make that one with, with who we are, in all of who we are. And as I've mentioned and prayed for throughout this service, as this world gets darker and darker, we have the unique and special and powerful opportunity, unlike no other time before, to be the clear and bright lights of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one who is the very definition of life. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please, please stand with me as we close out our worship time this morning. A life given to Jesus, repented of sin and self, and taking him as the king over the rest of our lives. There is no guarantee at all, anywhere in God's word, that we're going to have an easy life after that. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Jesus promises that just as the world hated me, it's going to hate you. Let not one of us be surprised by that in any way, nor if anything we stand up for God's Word and the truth that is found in God's Word. may We never be surprised by that. But we know that no matter what happens to us in this life, no matter what persecution we face, no matter what trials we go through, we have our eternal life to look forward to. Mm -hmm. The worst that can happen to us in this this earthly life is what? Death. And what is death for the Christian? An open door to our eternal life. So really, there is nothing to fear, and only ever that to be uh, joyful about, to be excited about, and to live for Jesus for. So no matter what we go through in this life, it will always be well with our soul. sacrificed with us uh, for us. What being a light truly means. Go in peace.